0: Music education. When I was a kid, it was an elective, never considered central to a full-rounded education. And now, decades later, as public schools look to cut costs, music education has moved from an elective to the easiest program to toss overboard. Really? Yes, really. Tossed overboard with study after study, illustrating the enormous power of music education for kids. Former colleagues of mine at MTV Networks, my corporate home during the early to mid 1980s, understood this power and their own responsibility to make music education a priority. And so it was that in 1997, VH1 Save the Music was launched. Today, over 20 years after John Sykes was compelled to use his own bully pulpit to raise awareness about the power of music education for kids and to ensure that schools had the resources they need, this organization is older and wiser, stronger and more impactful. How so? In the answer to that is a lesson all nonprofit leaders must see, understand and embrace. The key to impact that sticks is an understanding that change exists in context. A school district exists in the context of the community. Save the Music learned that systemic change begins by building a music ecosystem in a community, building a culture that values music, one that sticks, takes a village, and it takes time. There is a universal lesson in our story today. Build a music ecosystem to ensure that the kids and the school districts build a music program to last. Today, the lesson we learn, don't do anything about us without us. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits, I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangarry.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Henry Donahue is the executive director of Save the Music. A national nonprofit that helps students, schools, and communities reach their full potential through the power of making music. Prior to Save the Music, Henry was the COO and head of partnerships at Purpose, a digital strategy and creative agency that focuses on social impact projects. Notable clients included Every Town for Gun Safety, the ACLU, Oxfam International, the Ford Foundation, Nike, Ikea, Audi and Liverpool FC. Henry has also worked as a media executive focused on digital product development. He's held senior positions at Discover, Condé Nast, Prime Media, and LendingTree.com. He spent most of the 1990s on the road across the USA as a fundraiser for political candidates, including U.S. Senators Jay Rockefeller from West Virginia and Ron Wyden from Oregon. At the same time, he was playing guitar in an indie rock band and running an in- small independent Record label. Henry has an A B in American history from Harvard College and an MBA from the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. Henry, great to have you with us, sharing the story of Save the Music and the lessons contained within.
1: Good to be here. Good to see you, Joan. Thanks.
0: Hey, I'm delighted to have you. So why don't we start with sharing with our listeners the origin story of Save the Music? What was the germ of its mission? And tell us a little bit about the journey.
1: Yeah, I mean, Safe the Music's mission and vision are the same today as they were back, uh, Joan and you John Sykes and uh, Aretha Franklin's VH1 diva days. Um,
0: <laughs> I like being put in yeah. the same category as Aretha Franklin, yeah. by the
1: way. Celine Dion and I don't know, Shania Twain. Um Every student in every public school should be making music as part of their education. And I think you had a great um, overview of why in the intro. We know from decades of research that when schools have music, the students do better, the school does better, the, the community does better. Um, in normal times, you know, I travel all around the country and even in the toughest schools, when you get to that band room or that choir room, you know, it's that you just it's joy and inspiration and, and hope for the future and, and all those things. So I, I love going to high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, and I love interacting with band teachers and band kids. Uh, it's amazing. The landscape out there is that most schools in the U.S. do have music as part of their school day. Hmm. Uh, there's a quote from Jeffrey Canada uh, that I'm sure I'm mangling. <laughs> but it's something to the effect of if you want to see what a quality education looks like, look at what rich people do. You know, about 80 percent of American schools have music and art as part of their school day. Um, and the programs that have been cut over the years and where we do most of our work are in schools that serve black students, immigrant students and, and rural rural students as well.
0: What do you love about your job, Henry Donahue? Because you love oh, your job, don't
1: you? I, yeah, I mean, this is that's. I love so it, you. You mentioned it. I mean, I've worked in politics and advocacy and social impact in various ways for for a long time. Um, you know, in, at Purpose, uh, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. You know, we worked on. Gun safety. We worked on marriage equality. We worked on uh, a project involving immigrants, and um, you know the fight for the $15 minimum wage. All of which were 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 deeply, deeply satisfying. Um, but when Chris McCarthy, who's the guy who runs MTV now, came to me and we had this conversation about VH1 Save the Music, which five six years ago you know, still had a very solid sort of core group of program team people working there, doing amazing work, but has sort of been what I call, you know, I don't know, an orphaned corporate asset (laughs) in the Viacom CBS uh, empire. You know, I was presented with the opportunity to do the thing that I did for my job, which was, you know, corporate impact strategy and advocacy and combine it with the thing that I, you know, spent my whole life in love with, which which is music.
0: Which, by the way, you you don't have the benefit of seeing Henry, but I do, and I see a keyboard, and I see a guitar. So, <laughs> yeah. pace, was...
1: a few amps back there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. This is a music guy, right? You're, an, you're a you're a, a an advocate. Um, And you're a musician and you get to do both in the same job. That's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. And I think this is sort of at the core of what Save the Music does, um, which is I remember myself as, you know, a pretty angry and somewhat directionless, you know, tween and and teen.
0: (laughs) You don't think that's an oxymoron, anger and angry and directionless tween? Well,
1: i say, yeah, my anger wasn't really an no, no, oxymoron.
0: I mean, redundant, actually. Redundant, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think,
1: yeah, well, I, anger. Uh, I'm sure there's some like punk rock or Woody Guthrie lyric about, you know, uh, um, anger as an energy. Actually, I think John Lydon said that from, <laughs> from uh, um, Johnny Rotten. Um, but yeah, I mean, I believe strongly in the life saving power of music. Uh, you know, I remember very vividly in fourth grade when the middle school band came to our elementary school to showcase the, the band program. And um, a kid named Chuck Ryerson played the trumpet, and a kid named Kenan Foreman, who I later was in a couple bands with, played the drums, and they did rock around the clock. And that was a revelation to me. You know, I was like, yes, that, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. And from that point on, and I went to public school in, in Maryland, you know, a uh, pretty good public school, but still public school. And, you know, I threw myself into every possible opportunity to do music. I was in band. I was in musical theater. I was in the show choir. I had my own band, you know, um, and then have been playing in bands and playing music, you know, pretty continuously since, since then to now.
0: Um, There are a bunch of studies and you should go to save the music foundations website and you can actually um, have a look at some of these studies that really show the connection between music and success in schools and, Um, and and some of those things that um, make quite a case statement for what you do. Is there something you'd put at the heart of what it is about music that drives student success? I was just sort of curious, when when you think about what, you've been at schools all across the country, um, what's the secret sauce about music that finds its way into studies that most of us are not going to read? (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's, even my board may, may not be, be reading them and I'm sending them out all the time. Um yeah, I mean I think we uh, there are really two I think themes about this. One is globally when the school is a nicer place to be, meaning there's music in the school, there's art in the you know on the walls of the school. Um Kids show up at school more, you know, for me, you know, we, there's, we can talk, you know, about, and I will talk, you know, I think we can talk about things like social emotional skills and creative problem solving and all the benefits that music, you know, if you think about music as a discipline, somebody once said to me, like, if you are in a math class, right, and you get 93% of what you're doing correct, that's pretty good. At your math class, if you're playing in a music ensemble and you get 93% of it right, that's a disaster. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like you, need to, you need to, it's a, a way of listening to people, performing with an ensemble and a team, you know, having the discipline and the rigor to practice There are all those benefits to that. But I think fundamentally, and we believe strongly that music isn't just for the music kids, it's for everybody. Yeah. In the school Having music and art in your school makes the school a better place to be. And there's study after study where we can demonstrate a um, very, very strong correlation just between there being music in the school and students showing up at the school.
0: Right. Interesting. Which
1: to me seems like the fundamental you know, thing that that we're, we're trying to do. And then once students are in school and engaging in music, we know that it has all these other benefits in terms of math and creative problem solving and working in teams. We know that teachers feel more supported and by the administration and the school. And then we know that overall, the school environment improves. And there's all sorts of numbers to back that up in terms of discipline incidents are lower, test scores are higher parents are more engaged we work in a lot of communities where it's challenging for a parent for whom English isn't the first language to come to a a teacher parent conference right and but they're very people are very excited to come see their kids you know perform yeah. you know,
0: in, in a musical thing. So Yeah, that's a, quite, a, um, quite a universal thing. Um, so um, I, I love that. I, I, I do think that that's true about a really strong nonprofit is that their origin story and their original, the original germ of the idea stays with them regardless of the journey they travel. And it seems to me, based on conversations you and I have had, that... The why has not changed in the slightest from 1997. Um, but the what, uh, and, you know, perhaps you can speak to the sort of the how has kind of changed a bit. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And this is I'm just wrapping up my fifth year here. And Joan, you were here at the beginning when we uh, had a board meeting and nobody came. To the board, to the board meeting, <laughs> um, and so I said, "John, we need help. Uh, I think we may need to recruit a new board, um, which we've done." But I think that the there is really two fundamental ideas. One is that the old approach to save the music, um, and I've talked about this with Sykes, uh, was very transactional, yep. is what I would call it. So, you know, just as an example. Um, Save the Music, H1 Save the Music would bring a pop star to a school, they would recruit a corporate brand to sponsor that appearance, so let's say Starburst, you know, brings you Disney Star X, you know, at your school assembly today, and then that would fund the delivery of a bunch of instruments to to that school, and then the next week, you know, we'd have a different corporate brand, a different pop star, a different school, you know, and the the circus would move on, move on to another town. For a lot of reasons, you know, the music business is very different than it's been. Corporate marketing dollars are deployed in a very different way. MTV is in a very, and VH1 at a very different place in the music industry, just in terms of their, how they operate. That model really doesn't work, work as well. Anymore it doesn't work from a funder perspective, um, again, because those marketing dollars really come and go. More importantly, I don't think it really matches up with how we want to do sustainable work. I think that the transactional model a lot of times we found to what happened was two, three years down the line, that teacher had left that principal had left that school and those instruments were in a closet.
0: Right. Right. Now, was that the model that you inherited? Yes. Yeah,
1: yes. It was very um, tied to sort of the way that the cable channel business operated, right? So it was very talent driven. It was very corporate driven. And to be clear, we still do plenty, plenty of that stuff. Right. But I think that I brought with me a couple lessons uh, from Purpose. One was that in order to have sustainable change, Mm -hmm. you really wanted to bring people together at the community level so that once you made that capital investment in the school of those instruments, then you had also built up around it all that support from music, people in the community, music parents, the principal, the superintendent, the music teacher, the alumni of the program, uh, local nonprofits. And by doing that upfront work, and that sort of, I don't know to call it, that sounds nerdy to say like a landscape analysis, but doing that community building work on the front end and co-creating the plan with the people from that community that puts you in position to make a much more sustainable impact. Whereas our grant money is really like a catalyzer for that community to come come together and support the revival and the growth of music in the schools in that community. The second thing is just the idea. And so this is a totally selfless, systemic community level change is is where the money is. Right. And so... um, John, as you know, I'm an active follower of your, your blog and, and your fundraising posts. If you think about it from a nonprofit leader and development perspective, we want to have in place long-running, renewable, significant relationships with people who are making big philanthropic gifts to the foundation year after year after year. And if we brought them in in this early stage, where we're building community, we're getting input for them to co-create the plan, you know, and they really feel like this is an organic, authentic effort that we, as a national group, are helping catalyze, but is ultimately going to be driven and sustained by that that community. That is a very, in our experience, successful way to structure your your grant proposal.
0: I'm actually really curious, and I didn't ask you this before. When you came for your interview to Save the Music, um, did you pitch this idea of systemic change in communities through music? Um, or, or did you, or did it sort of, did it, did it come to you? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really curious whether or not, um, uh, Save the Music knew what they were buying when they bought you. Did, were they buying? Yeah, so it's a, it's somebody a, little, had a bigger... little of
1: both. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking back this. No, so def- what happened was I, because um, if you're familiar with Purpose, there's a lot, you know, a sort of a lot of strategy, you know, thinking and sort of um, thought leadership, you know, that goes into how Purpose sort of markets markets its work. So there was a definitely sort of that core element of you want this to be an authentic, organic, community lived, uh, sort of community-driven initiative. Yep. You know that was always a core part of what we did, and the purpose is revenue, without giving too much away, um, is driven primarily by those big foundations: the Gates, Soros, Bloomberg, Ford, Rockefeller, of of, of the world. Um, and so, what? So just. As a side story, what happened is I came in with my sort of purposey business development guy pitch, you know, the way I would do it to MTV. I don't think that they were wowed by that. I think they were sort of more like, "What is this guy talking about?" They went out, I believe, and tried to find somebody from the record industry, like label executive uh-huh. or a music or a music industry marketing person, to take over the executive directorship. Um, that wasn't successful. And then three months later, they came back to me and asked me to interview. Very for interesting.
0: So I- um, before I before I make you dig dig deep into a, in a into a community case study, because I want to bring this to life for those who are listening. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I think we need to probably bust the myth that people might have. That you have a cushy job because you are a five hundred one c three under the auspices of a uh, giant media conglomerate, i. e. VH one slash you know Viacom, Viacom so, CBS Paramount, yeah. yeah so yeah. Should, you want to you want to bust the myth that you have a cushy job in terms of fundraising, just so we're clear about. Aside that?
1: from the fact that no board member showed up at my at our first at our first. Yeah. Well, I meeting. yes, <laughs> I knew that. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first of all, just to get this out of the way, I'm eternally grateful to Chris McCarthy for hiring me for my my dream job, and yep. I'm, I'm quite happy to be working under the auspices of, of Viacom CBS. Um, that said, at this point, Viacom only accounts for about ten to fifteen percent of our of our income. So, they're still a great partner. Yep. We still live inside Viacom CBS in terms of. The office space, although I guess we're all now at home, so that may be less <laughs> less relevant. Um, yeah, so we raise eighty five percent of our budget, and that's as we grow. The Viacom piece isn't growing, and so the Viacom piece is going to continue to shrink, and the outside piece is going to continue to grow. So we get like any nonprofit, and the people you know who uh, listen to your podcast and read your blog, John. We yeah we have a development team who are busting their humps every day to get that foundation money and the board give, get in the corporate sponsorships. And, you know, it, we're recording this right around giving Tuesday, you know, which is like our super bowl of individual giving. Yep. Uh, and it doesn't stop until, you know, December 31st. I think people know, know how that goes for the year end. Um, so yeah, it's, um, we in a lot of ways actually we have to explain to people exactly what you're saying which is people are like why should i give money to you if yeah. you're you know uh to vh1 save the music and so we have to Explain that um, we Well, independent you've, just you've, just ex, you've just explained. You've yeah. just you've just explained
0: it to a few people anyway. You know, whoever's listening now knows, so that's good. Um, but I, you know, I mean, so <laughs> what, how, what a wonderful and we,
1: yeah. And we, if you remember, like we had also inherited a significant debt back to MTV when I when I started the organization, so that we had to sort of dig ourselves dig ourselves out of.
0: Well, what a wonderful thing for VH1 to have um catalyzed what you have what you have built and grown in this much more sophi- in a you know sort of evolving and sophisticated fashion so um they have a lot to be proud of in terms of what they've built and what it's become so let's talk about this community engagement piece um when you talk about deep community engagement you're talking time like years and you're also talking about a quite a breadth of engagement. So let's let's talk about that. Maybe if if the Mississippi Delta, I know you've been working down there, but if you want to pick some some other community, I I'd really like you to tease out the case studies so people can really understand um, what the work really looks like and why the community piece is so integral.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's I part of my uh, standard stump speech is um, that it's unfortunate that uh, the organization is called Save the Music. You know, it really should be called Music Saves, right? Because music, music itself doesn't need saving. People love music. People are making music all the time. It's like the last nonpartisan issue on earth in, <laughs> in, my, in my experience you know, hey, you know I mean, you're the like,
0: executive director. You could actually change the name. I'm sure with that, you know, you, you could have a conversation with your board about changing the name, just so you know. we will
1: see, you'll see. Well, we, we have music saves, our hashtag pretty much on every everything, everything oh, cool. that we do. So we maybe maybe, maybe getting there. Good. Um, you know, and so I think the important concept there is that we're not saviors. We don't want to be, be saviors, right? Every community that we work with um, from... New York to New Orleans to Dayton, Ohio to you know Chula Vista, California, has an active community of people making music. There, they're making music at home. They're making music in church. They're you know people are making and listening to music in nightclubs and parties. You know, music is is a constant feature of people's lives. The challenge and the problem, or that we're trying to solve, is this missing connection to music education. Whereas, as we said, most people do have it. And it used to be a feature of almost every single school in America had the opportunity for people to play music. We now have this sort of inequality in this gap where it's been cut in about 15, 20 percent of schools. Um, and so the, the idea that you mentioned in the intro, don't do anything about us without us. I was at a one of these as i'm sure a lot of nonprofit leaders are one of these sector wide convenings or gatherings and we were all talking about how we were all going to band together uh you know to finally solve this problem and you know all the big ideas we had for genius solutions you know in some boardroom in new york city and lori shell who's one of our, ba- our board members from nashville sort of passed me a note and on that note it said don't do anything about us without us which i took to mean that you know we didn't have to go anywhere and save the music that ability to change and that potential already existed in these amazing communities and people that that we serve i mean if you think about it john pretty much almost every form of popular music that we listen to right now pop music dance music jazz edm rock came out of the very cities where where Save the Music is working with these communities to restore music education. Um, So the example that I, that I'd like to use just because it really calls out the point is we have an amazing program in New Orleans. Uh, And I usually bring up New Orleans because um, if you've ever been to New Orleans or listened to music from New Orleans or know anything about New Orleans, you would know that it would be ridiculous for me, Henry Donahue, to fly down from, you know, Viacom headquarters in Times Square and start telling anybody in New Orleans anything about music. Right. You know, New Orleans invented music. <laughs> <laughs> Basically modern, modern music. Um, you know, and so uh, I don't know if you're a New Orleans person, Joan, but if you've ever been to Preservation Hall,
0: I have which been, is yes. You know,
1: right, right. It's like a religious experience. Mm-hmm. And people show up at Preservation Hall every day from all around the world. So, if you, when you were sitting there, you were probably sitting between a person from Sweden, a person from Japan, and, you know, behind a person from, you know, San Francisco. And so when you start digging in and talking to people in New Orleans, A, they're justifiably very proud of the history and the culture and the role that New Orleans plays in music. They're also super skeptical of people who show up in New Orleans with the mission of that they're going to save the music. (laughs) And so when we first started going to New Orleans as an organization, because, um, you know, we knew people from Jazz Fest and Tipitinas and, you know, all these amazing New Orleans uh, places and bands, we really tried to sit down with, to your point, as many different kinds of music people as we possibly could. So when we had a convening, we invited every band and choir director in Orleans Parish that we could find. And in fact, the band and choir directors in the parish had not gotten together as a group since Katrina.
0: Wow!
1: And when we had our convening in in twenty seventeen, um, we invited local nonprofits, we invited advocates, we invited you know musicians, teaching artists, performing artists. Um, And so we try, and then we started to collect stories and data and input from people on the ground there who had that visibility on what the landscape was like.
0: So let me just step you back for one second. So had you gotten, um, had you, had your organization targeted New Orleans schools? because they were in that 20%. Did you then go look for funding to do this work or did that, or did the reverse happen? I just want to, I, 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 you no, landed yeah, so, in, yeah, just sort of how did you land in New Orleans? Um, so uh, one is just, again, I
1: think if you're serious about rebuilding music education in places where it's not in the United States, these places, you mentioned the Mississippi Delta, New Orleans, Nashville, Detroit, um, Miami, L.A., you know, we do definitely have a theme of this idea that these are the communities that, again, created the music that everyone listens to and big corporations make billions of dollars on. And those very same committee, communities, the students are not connected to music education and, and that culture and that history, which is really their, their own right. culture and history. And so that that's a driver, and that's one of the reasons why we're active in those in those places.
0: Got it. Um, so I didn't from a funding that. perspective, yeah.
1: New Orleans is, yeah. Go ahead. No, no,
0: no, no. You go yeah. ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, from a funding perspective, um, it's also interesting because New Orleans is a place for that reason because it's such a powerful magnet and has such a prominence in people's minds, you know, about American music that it's actually one of the few places where you can attract national dollars for, for local projects. Got it. Um that's not necessarily true in some of the other places, you know, we we operate, like uh Dayton, Ohio, you know, right. where most of the project is locally locally funded.
0: So now um, so now take us back. So I, I didn't mean to digress, no, no. but I just wanted to make sure people understood the context. So there you are and you're convening all of these folks um and uh so so pick it pick your story up from yeah, there
1: yeah, so you know, and we included funders in that process, so going back to my initial point, which is you know, if you are going to be playing in that uh the deep end of the pool, I guess there you know with these big philanthropic funders, they expect to have visibility and input you know into the creation of the plan, and so we spent a day you know going to schools um talking to local people, uh, we presented some of the results of our initial, the initial landscape and data analysis that our local partners had done. And we work pri- primarily with two uh, artists, Coronola and another group called the New Orleans Arts Education Alliance, which are, are fabulous partners of ours. Mm-hmm. And then the second day we did, we brought in all of the local and national funders that were part of that convening group. And we had sort of a brass tacks conversation about, okay, we think that out of the 90 some odd schools in Orleans Parish, 30 to 50 of those schools don't have what we would deem to be a sequential standards-based quality music education program for their students. And so how do we lay out a plan and a vision to make that kind of 30, 40, 50 school investment over the next several years to get that program off the ground. And what are the who are the partners? What is the funding that we need? In addition to what Safe the Music does, what do we need to be doing in terms of teacher professional development, data collection, um, you know, advocacy, and sort of put together that community level systemic intervention that then we could go to very large foundations. And we have three very large foundations right now that fund that project. It's in its third year um, and say, okay, this is what we think the, the big picture and the big investment looks like.
0: During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide, to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback and you can learn more at book.joanegary.com. As the founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, I have the privilege of hearing the stories of the remarkable work being done every single day by an amazing group of kind and generous leaders around the globe. I want you to hear their stories too, uplifting and inspiring. Now there's something we could use a whole lot more of, right? And that's why I want to introduce you to the Leadership Lab's own podcast, Your Nonprofit Life. In each episode, our lab's director of member experience, Laura Zelke, interviews a leader of a small nonprofit, offering you the opportunity to hear about their unique path into the sector learn about the important work they're doing, and be inspired by their passion and determination to change the world in ways large and small. Sample this dose of hope at yournonprofitlife.com, or you can find it on your favorite podcast app. So uh, two questions, I guess, is the first one is, so the power of that, of bringing that community together, right? Um. How does it impact the development of the plan? And uh, sort of, what did you l- learn by doing that that you would not otherwise have known? And um, is part of the idea? I'm just trying to get a sense of whether or not the po- the schools down there want a music program; they just don't have the money, right? I mean, this is, they certainly aren't rejecting the notion of it. So, how does so how does all of that community investment? I mean, if, if I was a school superintendent, I might just say, "Well, you're spending all this money convening. Why don't you just actually just give me that money so I can I can put my music program into place?" Uh, I, I I want I'm trying to figure out h- how I, I, yeah. So help me figure this. Help me figure this out, Henry.
1: Yeah. So I think it gets back to that sort of "don't do anything about us without us" point of view. Um, you know, uh, m- in my experience, most school leaders and superintendents and administrators um, want to be part of that, that decision making process, right? And no mm-hmm. doubt we definitely I definitely meet with superintendents and they're like, "Great. How soon can you start sending me instruments?"
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I had a, I think you had a the superintendent actually had that conversation with us from a pretty big, big city you know, uh, fairly, fairly recently. Um, and we're like, well, that's not, that's not really, that's not really how it works. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's two things. One is I feel strongly that it's, it's the right way to do the work. Uh huh. You know, again, I, I want to be very wary of that. We're very wary of that sort of, the, that sort of coming from New York and telling people what to do, you know, in other parts of the country. Type. Yes uh thing and i think the second point is really we want it to be community-led because having it be community-led goes back to that sustainability
0: yeah because we want it to stick
1: and so yeah and so you know newark new jersey is a great example we have a program there that's uh an effort between several large foundations nj pack the new jersey symphony um the Arts uh, Education Roundtable in Newark, Queen Latifah, Wyclef Jean, the mayor, mayor of Newark. Um, we're in the fourth year of a five year project. There, at the end, we'll have invested in almost fifty schools in Newark, and ninety eight percent of the students in Newark will have access to music education. Um,
0: That's amazing. You know, and I think that. Ha-
1: Thank you, and and I think that so in everything that we do. So we have three or four different grant types and they span from pre-K through, through high school. And so we don't come with a fixed agenda to a superintendent and say, you know, we think you need middle school band programs, which is sort of how Save the Music used to operate. Yep. We say, tell us what you think you need and where are the gaps in your program, in your community, and how can we work together to put together a plan to invest in 10, 20, 50, 100 schools so that we can get to our common goal of every student having access to music education. And again, so it's the sustainability of it. And then it's also the the systemic change is where the large philanthropic dollars are. And so um, it's a little bit of, you know, we wanted to get off that treadmill of like raise the money, spend the money, you know, the sort of this, that the, the not, that nonprofits, nonprofits are on. And we wanted to migrate to longer term partnerships, longer term projects, things that span multiple, multiple years. And so if you do it right, you know, at any time you're starting up some projects, you're really in that sweet spot sort of in years, you know, three through five of some projects, and then you're declaring victory. You know, we did it you know, and a a host of, host of projects, you know, rather than, okay, let's raise the money for school. Let's send the instruments to school. Let's raise the money for the next school. Let's send the instruments to school and sort of you're on that, that treadmill that, you know, I think a lot of nonprofit leaders are familiar
0: with. Isn't it also true that the, um, that you're a catalyst you ignite the funding ignites a program and that the school districts or the city explain the model that that there needs that there, there's important piece about their skin in the game
1: yeah we make a one time capital investment of each school and we require that for those each school that we invest in the school district makes a 10 year commitment to budget for the teacher schedule music during the school day have a dedicated room for music and do all the ongoing support of the program. And so yeah, so we make a on the funding side we make a one-time capital investment in each school and then as the program gets up and running, so you have five schools, 10 schools, you know, the next year, 15 schools the next year, then you get that that snowball effect. And it's, it's incredibly sustainable. I mean, I think that in my time here, we probably invested in 300 schools, roughly mm-hmm. 100%, you know, close to 100% of those programs are, are, still, are still going. Because once, once kids are playing music and parents are in the school and you see those students at the football game, you know, playing their instruments and at the school board meeting, and once you get the programs up and running again, they're very hard. To cut, and then, in point of fact, we have the right in our grant agreement to come and take the instruments back if they if they cut that teacher.
0: Um. So tell me, so so first of all, we are talking with Henry Donahue, who's the executive director of Save the Music, which is a national nonprofit that helps students, schools, and communities reach their full potential through the power of making music. it's called "Save the Music." Henry thinks perhaps it should be called "Music Saves." Which uh, <laughs> listening to listening to this podcast myself, I, th- I think he's on to something. And what we're talking about is um, systemic change, right? That that, uh, and we're talking about a, a sort of an evolution of of um, a strategy for a nonprofit from a transactional based delivery uh, against a mission to something that has evolved into something that is. Nuanced, something that is really community-based and um, uh, and lasting, which is um, all those things are are um, really really um, important to a thriving nonprofit. Um, So take a place like Newark today. You're in year four of a five-year project with them. And let's say I'm a member of the music community in Newark. Just kind of curious about how do I stay in the loop? How does my, does my, am I, uh, am I involved up front? Do I, how do you all circle back to me so that I know how successful it's been and that my voice mattered?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in Newark all the time <laughs> doing, doing stuff. So we, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, many of our uh, development staff are actually now live in program staff live in New Jersey. So Newark is an an easy one. I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that again, it's really driven by having those strong significant local partnerships. And so we are, we do professional development for all the teachers in Newark all the time. And those are led and driven by, by our, our local partners. Right. We're doing a bunch now around, um, things like trauma-informed care and how you incorporate that into teaching music huh. in the arts um, because clearly everybody, students, teachers, parents, uh, are going through a very, very rough time. Um, and so how can we as music advocates and how can music teachers incorporate sort of that perspective and and uh, into into allowing students to express themselves and sort of process you know what we've been through uh, this year right um, and then yeah and then we do a ton of fun stuff actually with with local partners too so yeah New Jersey Symphony plays with the kids uh, like Yclef is amazing at going to schools and uh, we do master classes and uh, yeah bring artists to schools and uh, we do showcases so um for all all the music schools and communities, um, you know, and try to bring the students together. And it's, um, we did one in New York city right before the lockdown. Uh, And it's just amazing to see like the elementary school kids, they get the ability to perform, you know, in front of an auditorium of older kids and kids who are like pretty successful musicians and in their high school bands. And so they love that opportunity. And then, when you can see them sort of light up the way I did as a fourth grader, when you know you see the elementary school band from the Lower East Side sees the Washington Heights like incredible Latin jazz band, yep, uh, from the Washington Heights uh, High School. Um, yeah, I mean we we do we we do we're we're in the community. We're supporting teachers. We're doing professional development. We're doing advocacy. I go to school board meetings, but we also yeah do super fun stuff where we oh. just.
0: It sounds like a perfect um, mix. bring
1: musicians and music people together.
0: Um, is the is the key success metric? And then I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic uh, briefly before we close. Because um, what would a conversation be without a without a you know discussion of a pandemic? Of course. Um, uh, is the percentage of schools with music programs your primary success metric, or do you have other uh, ways of measuring the success of your work, Henry?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, we are in the spectrum of music education nonprofits. We're we have the broadest focus. And so we're about every student in every school, equity, equity, and access. And so, you know, that 98% in Newark uh um, you know, to us is is a big metric. And then from there, you know, we want to see participation. So another great Newark metric is Music technology, um, we have a thing called the Jay Dilla music technology program. Uh, Jay Dilla legendary hip-hop producer uh-huh. um, that people my age love, like he was behind Tribe called Quest and the Roots and Eric Badu and you know people like that, D'Angelo. Um, and so he's sort of the patron saint of our music tech program at Berenger High School in Newark, which has 1,600 students. 1,100 of them have expressed interest in the music technology program. Wow. And so there's access, and then there's participation, and then there's all the outcomes, you know, we measure around attendance and test scores and teacher feedback and social-emotional learning and, and all, those, all those good things.
0: Awesome. So um, give me a snapshot of what 2020 has been like at Save the Music. Uh, it's
1: <laughs> like, uh, it's funny. We just, uh, billboard just published its women in the music issue. We had like four board members, uh, advisory board members on that list, which was a huge win for us. That's nice. Uh, but one of the questions they asked each person in billboard was, uh, what is the one word you could use to describe 2020? And, uh, like the word that came to mind for me was, "Is not suitable for a family, family <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I've been in this music this uh, music studio for you know for nine, nine months, uh, and like I said, the, I love going to schools. I love going to other you know other cities. I love meeting with people. I love uh, seeing uh, you know I go see other people's kids play you know in elementary school music <laughs> performances. That's 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 how much I love it. Um, and then we talked about this, like, you know, if you're ever feeling burned out about your nonprofit program, like go see the work and engage with the work. And so the inability to do that, except via Zoom, has been been very, very, very tough. Um, so let, you know, me ask, uh, let me ask the uh, question I, this silver way. Silver linings? Do you want, yeah. you want some, some yeah, silver Yeah, what linings? I want
0: is, is, uh, is there an, a silver lining or an innovation that you're going to take with you into 2021?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, like a lot of people, it's definitely accelerated our online program delivery. So we do a lot more now um, with like music industry master classes, which we would normally do in school. We do them online. And the advantage of that is we can bring like a superstar music producer, you know, or somebody mm. from Destiny's Child uh, into a Zoom class and we can have hundreds of students and teachers. Uh, we just had Fat Joe. on a a music industry masterclass, um, you know, uh, hip hop, New York City hip hop legend. And it was funny. You had a student on their little Zoom box. And then when Fat Joe came on, like their whole family was suddenly cramped (laughs) into the lesson to Joe Gary listeners. Fat Joe has has intergenerational appeal. Um, You know, I think the thing. And so we'll probably continue to do that. We've also uh-huh. really beefed up all the online, free online resources. So if you're a parent or a teacher or a student looking for the best in class, you know, music learning and teaching stuff, we that lives on our now award-winning website, SaveMusic.org. You know, we're doing a ton on TikTok. Uh, we have a Music Saves thing on TikTok that has like over 200 million views where people do music education things. But I think the main... Thing that's really going to carry forward is this music technology piece. Yeah. So that Jay Dilla grant that I subscribed, I described um, for high schools, is focused on beat making, producing, audio engineering, songwriting, things that students, even starting in middle school, have a ton, a ton of interest in. And so that Jay Dilla music technology grant is our most rapidly growing. Grant and this is the thing that's sort of in the most most demand um, for school districts. And during the pandemic, we've made that grant totally portable. So if you think about um, coming into a band room, you know you see the wall with all the instrument cases
0: mm-hmm.
1: in it. Now, in each of those classrooms, we have twenty gator cases, like hard cases, and each case has a MIDI keyboard, an iPad, headphones, and a microphone, like you know, the ones that we're we're using, you know, here on that podcast. And with those four things, a mini keyboard, an iPad, headphones, and a microphone, you can pretty much record music the same way that Billie Eilish does. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh in her bedroom. Right. Um and, and so now we've made that gate gator case sort of portable package available as part of the grant. And so you could, if you're in the music classroom and some people are like, we do calls with schools in Kansas and West Virginia, and they're in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, You can use it there. If they're using the band classroom to de-densify the school and sending people to other parts of the school, you can take that producer rig, you know, to the, another part of the school, or you can check it out and take it home. And so the idea that music technology is a really core part of what we do in addition to the, band programs and the string programs and the little kid, you know, percussion programs. Um, and then the idea that it's very student driven. Yes. So students are, you know, learning things on videos, using software to create music and they can make music on an iPad or on their phone, you know, or do it from home or wherever they are that that's here to stay for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we are about out of time, but let's not lose sight of the many lessons here um, about the power of music, uh, about about the power of music, about the importance of community in building something to last, Uh, the importance of finding the right guy to go run a, a music education program at the right time, who has the right kind of background who's both an advocate and a and a musician. Um uh lucky VH1 that uh sorry that la- that person before you didn't work out, but they uh seem to have hit the jackpot the second time around. And um I just wanted to say thank you. I I, I wish listeners could see your eyes light up when you were talking about um uh the washington heights group and um and I really hope that you um for all of our sakes that you're on the road before not too long and touching the music because uh it clearly is what fuels you and um and <clears throat> and save the music is really lucky to have you henry so thank you very much for joining Thanks, us.
1: Thank you for having me you know I'm a big fan i'm a avid uh and this was my first executive director job so i'll actually i'll give a a, uh, a testimonial for the uh, the Joan Gary like your first ninety days as uh, executive director uh, blog post, which I, I you know followed followed to the letter.
0: Uh, and I believe that blog post has a picture, uh, uh, an image of someone trying desperately to stay on a bucking bronco, as I recall. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, Henry, thanks for joining us. And um, to all of you who've been listening today, I I, um, I hope you um, grabbed on to some of the key lessons that are inherent in Henry's story. And um, and I just want to say that in a year that is like no other, um uh, the joy and beauty of music. I've spent have spent so much time with different clients this year, who have said, "Well, we only do choral music, or we're you know, it's not like we're feeding people, or we're not like we're, you know, curing cancer and um, uh, making music and sharing it and ensuring that people have access to it. It is feeding people. So for all of you who are listening, who are in the arts." and culture uh, sector, please remember that. Don't sell yourself short, not for a single minute, because um, in an ugly world, it is a lot of what has brought beauty to us. So um, thank you to Henry. Thank you for listening. And um, thanks for all the work you do. And I'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangarry.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.